0: It's Monday, December 11th, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Simmerman, and this is episode 142 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You alright? It's episode 142, and I'm pleased and delighted to say that for today's show, we are joined by guitar great Chris Forsythe of Chris Forsyth and the Solar Motel Band. That's who you hear back there. It's groovy, stinky shit. Let's take a listen. Chris Forsyth is with us, and it's a good one. Before we get into it, uh, I want to say thanks to everyone who came out to Roulette last week. It was a nasty, cold, rainy night, and I, I really appreciate all these of you that, that made the trip out to Brooklyn, got a little wet, got a little cold, and, and checked out some music. Thank you. I also want to remind you that if you are enjoying this podcast and you want to show a little support, please do that in uh, one of two or or both ways, which is please rate, review, and subscribe to it in iTunes. Um, That helps a lot, and you will get the show straight to your device the moment I upload it to iTunes. So you'll get it early, and you would be helping out the show. The other thing you could do, uh, and this is if you're really enjoying the show, please consider going to the Patreon and becoming a monthly donor uh sort of like an npr model you know a listener supported show go to patreon.com slash 5049 podcast to do that uh i i would certainly appreciate it today on the show chris forsyth um I've definitely met Chris over the years. Uh, I certainly have been aware of him for many, many years uh, through our many mutual uh, acquaintances. Um, but I never really talked to Chris at any length before this conversation. Uh, and I have to say right now, this conversation was great. I'm really happy with today's episode. Uh, we cover a lot of ground. For those of you that don't know Chris, uh, he's been in New York uh, for, I think, since 96. He now lives in Philly. He's originally from Jersey. Uh, He's a tremendous guitarist who who has covered a lot of ground as a musician. He made a record, um, one of many improvised records that he made uh, several years ago with my good friend Nate Woolley called The Duchess of Oysterville. Um, And Chris and I talk about that record a bit today because that record had a big impact on me. Um, I would say, and and this is something that he and I talk about today, that I I feel as if my musical maturity really began to happen at around age 27. And during that period, period where you know i was working really hard and i sort of began to feel a shift um i listened to this record that he and nate had made and it was really the first record um of what some might call lowercase music uh you know quiet sound based music um that that had that, that that i was receptive to uh and it opened a lot of doors for me and for you know a very abstract record i, I played it quite a few times you know um More recently, Chris has been kind of going back to his roots a bit, uh, playing with his band, the Solar Motel Band. Uh, Sort of a a Neil Young and Crazy Horse meets Grateful Dead meets um, Glenn Branca. Uh, You get the idea. It's really guitar and drum bass music, and it's fucking awesome. All the music I'm playing on today's show uh, are from the different records that he's put out in the last couple of years by his band, the... Solar motel band. And I just have to say it again, I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, a lot of this conversation reminded me of the conversations I used to have years ago hanging around record stores. Uh, we talk a little shit. we talk a lot about improvising. we talk about bands that we enjoy, uh, touring, all in all, you know, this is a good one. This is the kind of kind of show that I like to present. And Chris is a tremendous musician. If you're not already familiar with him, I, I would strongly suggest that you become familiar. If you want to do that, you're going to go to his website. And that website is the thechrisforsythe.com. thechrisforsythe.com. Check him out. He stays real active. He tours. He plays shows. He puts out records. Uh, and it's all on a very high level. Thechrisforsythe.com. If you want to check out some past episodes of this podcast, go to 5049podcast.com. They're all there. 142 episodes. Check it out. And that's it. Um, I hope you guys are all doing well. Here's my conversation with Chris Forsyth. get Busted for being a serial killer, <laughs> I think they'll just point to this little room. <laughs> it is like one well, of the things you live in Philly, so I have to imagine that you have like a real workspace. Uh,
1: yeah, actually, um, funny, yeah, it's, it's funnily enough. I just, um, uh, just finished it's, it's eaten up a lot of my last year. We, my wife and I bought uh, like an old kind of decrepit storefront under the L, under the train, and near where we live. Um, you know, whatever, kind of like a dodgy strip where you know it's, gen- it's gentrifying. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just converted it into six rehearsal studios and a uh, little project space in the storefront.
0: For real? Yeah. And it's up and going.
1: Yeah. And well, your people are like paying. All rent the rooms to- are rented, and yeah, they were rented. Uh,
0: Month and a half before we were finished really? building it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw on Facebook that you like a couple times you mentioned that you had bought something and you were you know doing construction work. I didn't I, I didn't realize that it was a commercial venture. Well, it's thought, funny
1: because you know there's a lot of things about Philly that kind of remind me of uh, New York in the '90s in some ways. Because like, you were here then. Yeah, I moved here in '96 from Philly. No, from Jersey. I grew up in Jersey. We were North, in Jersey, uh, North Brunswick, where New Brunswick,
0: North Brunswick, yeah, yeah, where yeah. Rutgers is. It's about 35 miles from here. So. Philly, sort of like equidistant.
1: Philly's a little further, but I would bounce. I had, I had, I went to, I went to both. Like I would, when I was growing up, I mean, my gravity was more towards New York, but I would sometimes go down to Philly to see shows because they would be more low key or smaller sometimes back then in the 90s, early 90s, whatever. But, um, yeah, but down there now, it kind of feels like, um, you know, like the same way that in New York, up until the '90s, it was kind of like the Wild West, and then things started to kind of tighten up. <laughs> and that's kind of happening in Philly, for better or worse. I mean, as uh, a property
0: owner, it might be for better. Yeah,
1: for sure. Yeah. And uh, but it, like, there's tons of empty space there, and like, space is really cheap. But there's no like legitimate <laughs> rehearsal rooms. Like, you couldn't find a place to rehearse where I wasn't like on the other side of like like a single sheet of sheetrock from like you know six metal bands. Right. And, like, you know, in like a building where they're like, um, "Here is the key." Like, we don't want to know. You know, well, that kind was, of thing. You know,
0: we were just talking about Dean and Britta out there. One of the reasons that I knew um, that I knew Britta at the time was because I was working on Houston between Allen and Orchard, mm-hmm. and on Ludlow and on Orchard, there were all these basement practices. Right. Spaces. I used to rehearse on one of those. The guy Shimon. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. But am I crazy? Because I was thinking about this the other day. Those were like twelve bucks an hour, if I remember correctly. I remember it was ridiculously cheap. Yeah, yeah. And I just booked a rehearsal the other day, <coughs> two hours in a practice space at fifty bucks an hour. And You know, it's it's a far cry from Shimon's yeah, yeah, basement, yeah. right? But... Right. Yeah, yeah.
1: I know what you mean, and that's the way that, that, like in Philly, there's it's like, you know, when we moved down there in '09, it was like, oh, this is kind of like if uh, you know, space is cheap. Yeah. If you have an idea, you can maybe, and you have like little gumption, you can kind of do it you know? Yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, the cities are very different in many other ways, but like, on those kind of superficial levels, uh, you know, there's, there's possibilities down there, and there's cheap space, I mean, that's just the thing, right? But cheap I, mean, space.
0: You, I mean, you need a practice space. You play electric guitar, you play with a drummer, I mean, yeah. you know, you have to interact with musicians at its... Right, and that's why halls. we did it, I couldn't find a place to practice that I was satisfied with,
1: so yeah. I was like... And then everybody I was talking to was like, where are you practicing, do you have a place to practice? I don't know, where are you practicing? Like, nobody right. had a... Nobody had a spot that they were happy with, or they kept getting shut down, or you know something weird would happen. Uh uh-huh. So, um, did yeah, you
0: was... do all the work on the space yourself? Or you hired?
1: No, I mean it was too big of a job for one person to yeah. do. I did a, I, I mean I was in, I was there almost every day doing something or other. But I, a friend of mine who's a sculptor, who's also a GC, he sort of, yeah, he has a crew of guys that he works with, and they did a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of the main stuff. And then obviously like, like I mean we, it was totally gutted, so it was like all new electrical, all new HVAC, like. So we had to bring in separate contractors for that stuff. I mean I have
0: to imagine that like zoning and permits are like easier down there than they are here. I don't know. I mean is it, it's a pain in the it's ass. A, it's a total pain in the ass. I mean, <laughs> anyway. this is
1: part of the thing is that like it's that coming coming out of the Wild West thing. Right. Like 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 uh and it's starting to tighten up. Like the last mayor in Philly, um uh, Nutter uh, really tried to like professionalize things and make it so, like, oh, yeah, we should enforce building codes because buildings fall over and kill and people, people die. Yeah. yeah. And that did happen a couple of years ago. There was a, they were demoing this building in Center City, like right in Center City, and it fell over on the Salvation Army next door and killed like five people. Yeah. And it was tragic. And since then, especially, like, they're really getting tighter about it. But all the contractors who have been like doing shit there for, you know, 30 years, they're just like, they, they, they. I mean, they don't even know how to interact with the bureaucracy because they never had to before. Right. They're just like down-home Philly boys. Totally. That, yeah. I mean, I had this one plumber come in, and I'm, <laughs> he's like looking with a flashlight. I'm like, so we need, I think we need to do this and that. And I was like, and you can pull the permits, right? And he's like, oh, yeah, we're not getting permits. Not get- and I'm like, no, I, we are getting permits. That's well, the thing.
0: So having you know taken part uh, you know, at, at varying levels uh, with commercial construction projects in the city – I've learned that a good GC, you know, obviously they do their work, they're they're thorough, all that shit, but they also know who to like slip a little money to and how to get past like Con Ed taking forever to get uh-huh. you know gas turned on. And did you ever see that movie Gangs in New York? Oh, a long the time ago. Film? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know how like New York is just like this fucking rat infested dump, like the Wild West, right? Like it still is. It's just like got one layer of makeup on top <laughs> yeah, of yeah. it. Like uh-huh. <laughs> this city is a piece of shit. Yeah, yeah. Like. Objectively, uh-huh. uh, and you see that, like when you go into any space to do any work, you're like, "Oh, this thing's like barely staying together." Yeah, 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 for sure. It's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I think I I, I know that uh, I learned also that code in in Philly is a little more la like a lot of things in Philly is a little more lax than in New York. Yeah, I have a friend who's a building inspector in New York, and he came down to look at um look at a property and it, and he he was he's not licensed there, so he couldn't do the inspection, but he was walking through with the local guy, and he kept being like, "Wait, that's." That's that's cool here. And you guys are like, oh yeah, it's totally it's oh yeah, it's totally fine, totally fine. <laughs>
0: totally fine. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so have you picked up the Philly accent? Um,
1: well, I I hopefully hopefully It's the not. O's, like that's it's the it's like the um. You should get I mean you should get Nick Milivoj to to do. That. I talked yeah. to Nick about
0: yeah. that. I didn't you know I talked to Nick and I was like uh, uh, Milivoj and he was like dog. <laughs> it's it's Millivoy. I'm from Philly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, so you moved <coughs> to New York in the 90s. Did you come to the Lower East Side or did you like I moved directly to Brooklyn. Yeah. That was you know, not that. I mean, people were already doing that, but you're in Williamsburg? No, I um
1: I got a place in um 5th Avenue and 11th Street, which oh, at nice. the time they were well at the time they were calling it Park Slope. It was it's just yeah, it was just like 99 cent stores and, you know, like that kind of shit. Um and then the next year my my roommate, who I had moved in there with, York he was hell bent on moving to Manhattan, and I uh, I don't know didn't want to or couldn't afford it or whatever I don't right. know, but like I um I found a rent stabilized place in Prospect Heights in ninety seven yeah and lived there until I left New York
0: really yeah I moved here in two thousand two and like you know, I'm sorry if this is not interesting for people, but this is like what people in New York do is they talk about rents like I had a two bedroom. 8 hundred fifty square foot apartment on Rivington Street for thirteen hundred dollars mm-hmm. like not that long ago yeah anyway <laughs> but you came here because of music I don't know I mean I um
1: it's been uh it's uh, it's been I've, ta- I've taken the scenic route I mean I moved here just to get the hell out of New Jersey really yeah um, and uh you know i I mean I didn't really know what I was doing musically at the time I knew I wanted to play guitar.
0: And you I were had, playing guitar. I was playing guitar. Yeah. I mean,
1: I was I mean, I went, you know, I went to college and like a lot of people that I know, I got out in like four years just because I wanted to get out. Like studied I,
0: music or English? No,
1: I didn't. I like studied art history. Oh. Like my 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 background, like both of my grandfathers are musicians, but consequently both of my parents grew up kind of broke. Uh-huh. And so they were like, Oh yeah, musician, that's an excellent hobby. But yeah. uh, it wasn't really and I you know, where I grew up in the suburbs out there is just kind of a cultural wasteland. There was no uh sense that you could pursue music as a valid you know life choice um i literally didn't know anything about going to music school or anything mm-hmm. like that so i just studied art history at school got out and i was like yeah i guess i'll move to new york now you know like go figure something out there that's mm-hmm. where you know where one ro- does it, yeah. yeah all these romantic notions about that and stuff. Mm-hmm. so but um you know i kicked around some like like shitty bands and then um uh and then i started taking lessons from richard lloyd from television really yeah
0: so, Were you a television fan He uh, sought him out specifically? Fanatical.
1: Yeah? yeah? Yeah, well, I didn't seek him out. I just, it kind of, I was at a, I was at a rehearsal space on uh, Avenue A and he had like a, a thing hanging with a, guitar. He had like a poster <laughs> hanging, like, you know, learn the cosmic secrets of musical theory from Richard Lloyd. And I was like, oh yeah, pulled off the tab and called him up. So, um, you know, he kind of he kind of like broke me down to square one and started me over, which I need, which needed to happen because I was totally self-taught and, you know, like a lot, like, you know, punk rock is great, but it destroyed generations of guitar players because, you know, <laughs> it's true. You don't, you only need a couple of chords or, or a jet. couple of ideas really. But if that's all you got, then you're, R- it's, it's, it's can be, you know, kind of productive or, yeah, you yeah. know, and like the anti-intellectualism of it or something can be, you know, um, problematic. So I, uh, you know i hadn't really learned how anything works and right. uh, so he you know taught me how music works and taught like me all this from, stuff.
0: from the ground up Scales, this, is, this is what a major intonation. scale is yeah. you know,
1: you know that kind of stuff so um so that was pretty much life changing but funnily enough at that same time is kind of when i took a hard left turn away from rock music like i i was you know uh, going to sessions at abc no rio Oh, and, like the know, sunday night thing yeah see, yeah and seeing yeah. um You know the Vision Festival stuff, and when Tonic opened, I was there all the time, and so I just sort of like turned away from, you know, playing rock music because I mean, to me, that's kind of when I mean, like, rock music also ceased to be interesting. Then I know that there's like a school of thought about like, oh, the '90s New York rock renaissance, and I'm like, fuck that shit, the Strokes and all that, like, not, not my thing. Yeah, and so I just. I just literally stopped listening to rock music for like ten years or so. Even
0: stuff like Sonic Youth and stuff that kind of No, I
1: mean I checked in with that for sure and I yeah. still saw them from time to time in then in that period. Yeah, it's true. But like I just my my focus went elsewhere. And also I was learning that I I was still trying to figure out this stuff that Richard had taught me and I found that with um, you know, free improv or experimental music, like I could get into a flow with people mm-hmm. because it was less about melody or you know correct harmony or whatever mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so i could get into the like just as a physical relationship with my instrument and with sound and with you know the sonics i could um i could find that flow and which was a skill that i wanted to work on and then it took me years before i could sort of combine that flow with actual like you know being able to play correctly or whatever and then being able to be like i'll play correctly or not correctly you know like being able to make that choice
0: but wait but you're you were coming from the rock perspective of like well i mean i think you know you're a couple years older than me but like what did you grow up listening to did you grow up listening to like Hard. I mean, I don't know. You tell me. I'm <laughs> uh
1: Well, I mean, like I said, I grew up in this kind of cultural wasteland in Jersey. I mean, there was classic rock radio. So, like, Did I you heard like that stuff. I, well, that, I mean, when it's all you got, that's what right. you got. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and and but at the same time, back then, you know, you would hear like you would hear like the um, you know, the rock and roll animal, Sweet Jane, with the really long guitar intro yeah. regularly on the radio. Like yeah. that was especially in the New York area. That was like a meat and potatoes. You know. what I Yeah. Mean? So like. Like, there was there was that stuff but then when I was got to be like a early teenager or something I um you know I I, I gravitated towards like the indie rock of the day all did the you, I mean the, did
0: you find your way to WFMU?
1: Oh yeah yeah for sure.
0: Yeah yeah. yeah. That's going to be your way out of that wasteland.
1: Yeah yeah no I was going to FMU from the time I was in high school like a friend of mine to the record fair. No to the station a good friend of mine still a good friend of mine <laughs> who's been been a DJ there for I don't know 25 years and I used to when they were still at Uppsala I used to mm-hmm. go up with him and he had the um you know, the, uh, like, like, uh, like two to 6am shift or whatever. And we would go up there and he would spin records and I would, you know, like smoke weed or whatever. Yeah. And be a Be a bad guy. Fuck yeah. And, uh, and then JM would come in in the morning to do his show <laughs> and be like, you know, clearing out the smoke <laughs> and stuff. And, I mean, he didn't, I don't think he gave a shit, but, you know, but that, and that was when it was still, you know, at this like decrepit, you know, right. a, falling apart college in North Jersey. But yeah, it's FMU. I, I mean, was, I, I only, you know, I, was I, super into.
0: I played live on FMU, I think like three times and literally every time I was there, I spilled a beer <laughs> every single time. Yeah. <laughs> and, but that's at the nice space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so. I mean, I always found, like, the classic rock shit, like, it never once, as even as, like, a five-year-old, six-year-old, like, something about it just always reeked to me. It just mm-hmm. reeked of, like, gross masculinity.
1: Well, culturally, it's terrible, yeah. I mean, yeah. a lot of it is. I, I, to me, it's still, like, just the... I mean, it, it to me, it was an innocent experience, too. It was, like, the... Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's... The stuff is, like, so cliched at this point, but, you know, I like, you know, hearing the... You know, the intro to Jumpin' Jack Flesh, just the timbre of the yeah. guitars and like the rhythm of it, like, spoke to me, you know? Well,
0: as it should. I mean, like, I, yeah. I feel like, I mean, it took me later in life, I mean, literally my 30s to begin to genuinely appreciate that yeah. stuff. Yeah. And I
1: mean, whatever. Like, we can, you can parse it down, but I, I'm not talking about the like Boston Farner. you know, like the okay. death of rock, classic yeah, yeah, yeah. rock, as, as the, what they usually play on the ghost stations now. You know, I'm talking about like the, the, the hot, chaotic shit from the late 60s yeah, and It 70s. sounds fucked up because yeah. it is.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Okay, so we're, we are on the same page. Right, right. I mean, I, but it was one of those things that culturally, like, I always felt like an alien because I just, it it grossed me out. Like, mm-hmm. in the way that I remember when my mom, like, started dating guys, like, the way they grossed me out, <laughs> like, it grossed me out. Like, that. Yeah, I could
1: see that. But yeah, by the time I was a teenager, I mean, I you know, I started to get into all the sort of our band could be your life bands, you know, yeah, and yeah, the Sonic yeah. Youth and the Meat Puppets and the kind of Me stuff. Meat Puppets, yeah. And um, and you know, and that was also that was a time when uh, it's hard to it's hard to re- or like think back to it now. But that was a time when like like you know, there wasn't. Um, like there were there was a culture and then there was a culture that was not it was against that culture you know what i mean that existed right. against it or in 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 opposition to it or in in spite of it really you know um and uh um so to kind of choose that um you know was a was like a statement and it was whatever in my high school there was like you know six people or something that as there <laughs> that, are in most high you know, schools <laughs> that, that that were down with this you know yeah so, um, and that, so I, I, from the time I was in high school, I started hanging out with people from other towns I'm, like, I wasn't just like in my insular high school, like mm-hmm. so many, like probably classmates, but I was going to shows in other towns and, um, you know, uh, coming up to the city to see shows and stuff. Um, and I remember really clearly, this is a little later, I guess, this is like 1991. But, uh, so I would have been, what, um, 18? No. Yeah, eighteen, and uh, we went to see Nirvana at City Gardens. This uh, what like year is this? Nineteen ninety one.
0: Okay, this is before. It was before. Nevermind. It was like
1: the month Nevermind came out, September okay. ninety one, and uh, so they're playing this club, City Gardens, which is like a legendary kind of punk club in, mm-hmm. in New Jersey. Um, big, you know, big, huge, usually half empty, filthy dive um great place we saw tons of shows there and went to see nirvana there and i remember my friends and i being like looking around and being like there's a lot of guys in like mega death t-shirts here and metallica t-shirts like what's fuck? that about well, what are the metal guys doing here yeah. because the metal guys and the metal people went to the metal shows <laughs> yeah. and the punk people went to the punk shows and right. they didn't go to the same shows. right and it was like that was the first inkling of like some kind of like whoosh, like you know
0: that and it wouldn't be long before the bros would latch on. Right, totally. And that's that was sort of a scary moment. Right, for well then,
1: fast forward, whatever, like two months or something to uh, Thanksgiving, and I went, to, ended up at some like party uh, with people that I went to high school with, and I had a single of uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit on one side, and I think Dive was the flip side. Uh-huh. And I put it in the player at the party, and everybody was like, Yeah, it Smells Like Teen Spirit. And then I flipped it over, and people
0: were like, Turn that shit off, <laughs> man. <laughs> I mean, I remember so clearly when that came out. I mean, I was a kid. I was in sixth or seventh grade when that came out. My sister uh, was in high school. And I remember seeing the video and being like, oh. I mean, being blown away by it. Like, it felt very much like the opposite of, of what I was describing a few minutes right. ago. Totally. It totally. And I really I was really attracted to it. And it was like, you know, very then, I remember um, waiting in the car, picking my sister up from high school, and seeing the fr- like, the jocks blasting it. And I felt like... Like, they'd taken something that mm-hmm. didn't belong to them,
1: Yeah, you know? Well, that was the beginning of when I said I stopped listening to rock music in the 90s because it all just, like, went it went downhill pretty fast, I think, you know? Yeah. Like, that stuff, in the same way that it always does. It's, like, in the same way that the stuff that broke through in, like, you know, 69 or 66 or something like that, like, in you know, three years later, it was, you know, um, yeah, three years later, it was, you know, uh, like... Uh, jim dandy and or or you know foreigner or you know grand funk railroad yeah yeah, yeah. early grand funk stuff is okay but you know what i mean it becomes just like becomes a commodity yeah
0: but are we like bitch-ass people for like i'm just thinking about this now like i want people to enjoy good stuff and i want people who make good stuff to be appreciated but i feel possessive over how people appreciate it like If people are enjoying the music, great. It doesn't matter. Like, that's a wonderful thing. But I guess I feel like if there's bros, like, banging their heads together and spilling beer on each other, like, like, they're right to detest me for disapproving of how they're listening to it.
1: I mean, everybody's got their own life to live, you know what I mean? (laughs) And uh, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like as I've I've gotten older, I realized how judgmental I was when I was younger Mm -hmm. and uh, started, you know... I get worse. started to be a little less than that, less (laughs) judgmental, (laughs) I I hope. I get worse. Yeah.
0: (laughs) I still work in restaurants, so... Oh,
1: okay. Well, yeah. I got out of that, so... Yeah. That that was probably a big part of the healing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy how... You know, just a side note, and I'll say this to you, because I know you you spent... You did your time in the the trenches. You developed the most, like, specific and just... uh, harsh prejudices working in the service industry like people will be like what the fuck Wait, what's your deal with northern australians <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you also get to i feel like you get to you learn to size people up real fast real fast because eating is this very intimate experience and you see the way it's like watching somebody shit or fuck you know yeah. what i mean like and they uh, the way they act you can learn a lot about them by by just uh, interacting with them and the way i mean i you know it's one of those old sayings but it's like you can tell everything about someone by the way they treat the server you know yeah and if you're and i mean i've had that experience where i'm out with somebody who maybe i've met and like we get along or whatever and then
0: i'm like what who are you yeah you don't talk to people that way dude yeah <laughs> you know or experience life that way we'll yeah. get back to music but i just have yeah. to say like because you did fine dining right
1: uh it's at times yeah 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 yeah
0: did you work in chef-driven restaurants uh-huh i mean like i, I i'm doing this thing now like you know, I work for this dude who, like, I will say objectively, is one of the best chefs in the country. Mm-hmm. Like, he's at a he's at a very high level, and it makes oh, me it makes my me. blood like you could boil pasta in my blood when I see people come in who just want what they want. Like, they they don't understand that you have mm-hmm. come into this master's house, yeah, and you surrender your bullshit at the door. Mm-hmm. Allergies, okay, okay, you got a, you got a wheat allergy, okay, that's 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 mm-hmm. reasonable enough, you know. But that's it. Yeah, yeah, you're here. You shut the fuck up and take what is being served, or leave. Right sorry. Yeah. I mean, uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I waited on uh, Randy Johnson once, you know, the pitcher. The baseball? Yeah, he's yeah, an asshole, right? Yeah, he's, uh, I wouldn't say he was an asshole. I would say he was in the wrong place. And I think, and by the wrong place, I don't just mean the restaurant, I think maybe the city. Yeah. <laughs> and like, he came in, nobody else in the restaurant knew who he was except me. And he just seemed disoriented. And when he he just wanted a Caesar salad and yep. a Coors Light. That's it. And a fried chicken. And I was like, well, sir, um, this is what we have, and he was just like, uh. and he he wasn't like a dick about it. He just—you could tell—he was just like not in the right place. Well,
0: I and mean, I found out—I
1: found out after the fact that he had had some sort of like fist fight with paparazzi that afternoon at his contract signing. I think he was just like, I just—I just signed this big deal to come to New York, and this is what I'm faced with, and I'm in this, you know. Right, shishi Asian fusion restaurant, and I'm looking for a Caesar salad, man. Like, but I mean, the person who took him there obviously took him to the wrong place.
0: Right, I mean, should have gone to
1: BBQs and
0: to Times Square. And you you would have had a fucking blast. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I, we'll get back to the music thing. I just have to say, like, people like what they like. And that's could, a, you should start a restaurant podcast, dude. Be, no, because it would fucking it would be too inflammatory. <laughs> like it would. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, I could talk this shit because I don't really care about that world. Yeah. But I have friends who are deeply invested in that world, and if yeah. they were to like really say. Like I'll just say this, and then it's the last thing I'll say is like if you go to a restaurant and you engage with a server or a manager who's just like really charming and like, you know, like you think they're really great, there's like a eighty five percent chance they want to punch your face. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, the most charming people in the restaurants are the people that say Uh the craziest shit. Like when they go back to the kitchen or the dishwasher, they're making the most horrible jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So (laughs) fair enough. (laughs) so you came to new york without much of a plan or even an idea of what you're doing i
1: had like i don't know 600 bucks on me or something
0: that'll work yeah yeah that's good and mm-hmm. did you who were the first people you came into contact with on a musical level um well like
1: i said i was i was kind of i was playing in this like nothing band for i don't know six months or something with my guy that i moved to the city with and we we're playing like awful places like the spiral on houston street it's just like just i mean it's not there anymore i don't think but just it was a terrible time for rock music in in the city you know it was the kind of place where there'd be like seven bands and everyone would be a different audience and they ask you at the door who you're here to see and that kind of shit
0: the band would end up owing
1: the venue money (laughs) right it was awful yeah and uh I don't know, I just kind of soured on that really quickly. It's understandable. Um, and uh I don't know, let me think. Um that's a good
0: question. How did who, who how did I what did I start doing? I mean, I remember when I moved here, I knew your name and there were there was like I there's still lots of people who were like you know, I became close with Nate Woolley. Oh yeah. Um but there are names. There's just these names from the time period. Some people I, I became close with. Some people I never met be, were aware of, and it was like Jamie Fenley. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you had to be PSI. Yep. Uh, that was
1: that. That started in two thousand two, early two thousand two, I think. Um, uh, late two thousand one, early two thousand two. It was just after nine eleven. Uh, so maybe it was two thousand one actually, but uh, um. But yeah, that and but but the in the I'd been in the city for five years at that point. Like I said, I was just kind of flopping around. Yeah. I mean, I was like, I was going to those ABC No Rio jams that Blaze Sawula would run. Uh And um, I don't know. I mean, I played with all kinds of people there. It was that was like a real free for all, you know, literally like you'd show up and who was there. Like that's who'd play. Yeah. Um, And sometimes it was, you know, uh, Daniel Carter and Sabir Mateen. And sometimes it was people who I don't even remember who could, you know, whatever may or may not still be around. Right. Um, but uh I mean I, I I guess I I I I think of PSI as like the first thing that I did that has like any kind of value. <laughs> you know, like
0: <laughs> that like, happens.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like and uh so then I yeah, I would have been like maybe twenty-seven or so when uh uh yeah, twenty seven, twenty eight when that band started. Yeah. And um that was yeah, Jamie <clears throat> who uh now does this project called Mind Over Mirrors, he's in Chicago now. And he was doing, like, you know, uh, no-input mixing board and oscillators and mm. um, he, everything. He, he Whatever he was doing was constantly just this evolving electronic son- setup. And then Fritz Welch was the percussionist and right. vocalist. And um, uh, he, you know, is one of the most... I mean, he's, he's really... He's a visual artist. Uh-huh. And, like... Uh, He's one of those people who, I mean, if you asked him to play a backbeat, he couldn't do it. But, like, he can play shit that nobody else can play. Right. He's also, you know, and he's, and he's just like a transformative kind of performer and charismatic and um and he in, 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 imbues a lot of humor alongside of a lot of terror and a lot of, like... It's a beautiful combination. You know, yeah, like deep... uh you know deep expressive ideas but like there's a lot of it's a a complex brew with him so um and that was that band was really like a three-headed monster i mean it was like there was no leader really we argued all the time and purely improvised um often i mean i think our best stuff was purely improvised but we would set up structures or strategies for things too sometimes yeah um usually in the studio so like our live sets were almost always just we would just kind of blow it out Uh uh-huh But then when it came to making records, um, I think our first one or so was just like these improvisations. But then it was like, why put improvisations on a record? Like, why not, if you're going to make a record, try to make a a document that exists in this other kind of permanent form and has a little more, um, you know, it's not just a transparent recording of something that happened. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, did you feel uh, much need for continuity between the performances and the records? No. Right.
1: Um, and, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we started really, it's kind of, it was around the time that like the whole kind of lowercase thing, that, at least that I became aware of it, like around 2001 or so, uh-huh. the Berlin people and the, the Japanese people. And, uh, we were re- super into that. Um, I had, I had gone over and played in Berlin and met, you know, Axel Derner and Burkhard Bynes and some of these people. And Did you
0: play with those guys?
1: I played with Burkhard. Yeah. Um, and, uh. Kai Fagashinsky and people like that and I was totally blown away by their whole thing I mean I it's really the first time I'd been to Europe and it was like a whole new yeah the people that would actually come up to you after a set and be like that was bullshit <laughs> the you German
0: know? compliment
1: yeah yeah and I'm like and I, I really appreciated that yeah because yeah. I was thinking that for five years often about my own playing people would be like oh that was good and I'd be thinking like that was awful what were you listening yeah to? what are you talking about yeah. I, I was like struggling up there um and uh you know I, so the first solo gig I ever played um Derek Bailey curated because I ca- I started hanging out with him
0: you met you knew Derek,
1: oh yeah well he would come in that time when tonic first started but he would come here for the company right yeah a month or two at a time and stay at the so off Soho suites yeah on yeah, um, yeah. rivington or, uh, yeah, it's on Rivington I think right yeah just, just before the, Bowery yeah yeah yeah, I dropped him off there a couple times, and so we became friendly and he had to have he curated this night. And the premise was like solo performances by people that have never played solo. And so he asked me and I was was, like, okay. And it was me and this other guitarist named Gary Smith, an English guy has this really weird technique where he like, it's not tapping, but he like uses his hands on the neck. And, um, okay. Pretty interesting. Um, I don't know what he's up to these days, but, uh, um, I went up there and I, like, I was, you know, I thought about this for you know, weeks leading up to it and I practiced and I, you had ideas you were going to bring to the stage. Well, I, again, I didn't know how to perform solo. I certainly didn't know how to improvise solo at this point. Like it was, I was the, perfect candidate for this because i had no fucking idea it was a, yeah. what what to do and i went up there and i burned through all the stuff i had thought of like in like you know four minutes mm-hmm. and then i had to play for another like 15 minutes or something and i walked off stage and i was like totally deflated yeah and i saw this guy gary smith the uh, guitar player was there and he's like having a beer And he bought me a, bought me a beer and was like how did it go and i was like oh, man, i don't know it was not, not very good i don't think and he's like He's like, you know, the audience can always take more than you're giving. Like he's like he's like, you know, if you, you like you burn through an idea and you think you're done with it, they're just getting a grip on it. You know what I mean? Like they're just processing what you're doing. He's like, you should he's like, you know, let an idea go out for a longer and then plan down the road or think around, you know, down the road, how that's going to evolve. But like, not just be like, I did this and I did that. and I did this and I did that. That's <laughs> really sound advice. Yeah, right. Totally. I mean, it's, I think I still think about that to today, no matter for any kind of music. It's like, if you're making a statement, like in your brain, it's this like, I'm doing this thing. Isn't it obvious? Whereas it needs to sink in, uh-huh. you know, to the listener, uh, so that was a big that was a big thing, you know, learning uh, like I learn everything by by doing it wrong. And uh, <laughs> so Yeah, you and I are brothers yeah. like that. <laughs> so uh so that that was that was a thing. Um also oh, another another big another big uh uh thing around that time for me was Lauren Connors. Um I was going to see him a lot in the and I got to know him and I still was know Was that him.
0: before he, before he uh
1: was diagnosed with yeah. Parkinson's? I think so. I, I don't know precisely when that happened. Um, but yeah, when I, I mean, I, I started going to see him in the very early nineties. And, um, so
0: I don't, I gotta be honest, like I've only ever, I've seen him play a couple of times, but it's all been within the last five to 10 years. And mm -hmm. I'm completely unfamiliar with what the music was like before the, the sickness. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, he's one of those people that I think is so fascinating because especially considering the, you know, uh, the Parkinson's, like he's just found a way to continue to express himself and in a way that essentially I think is the same and it, it's just he's he can't he used to have a left hand like you know bb king or something like right. he would just like bend notes and like they would sing and um you know he can't really do that anymore right um but uh you know he's found a way to I still I mean it still feels very much of a part of what he's what he's been doing for decades you know he's I think he's a really special uh, special performer and special yeah, artist. Yeah, I mean, that's
0: a pretty common uh, sentiment.
1: Yeah, and feeling. I I played a the duo gig with him in Philly last year. I played two duo gigs with him last year. One up here in um at uh, the old the secret Ro- project robot space. Uh-huh. And uh, and I I hadn't played with Lauren in a long time. And the last time I'd played with him, I remember feeling like I couldn't I couldn't figure out I couldn't figure out what what to do. I didn't I didn't feel satisfied with the performance, and I texted uh, my friend tom carter who's played with lauren a lot using uh-huh. charlemberties and does a lot of solo guitar stuff and i was like what's your what's your ta- what's your strategy with lauren and he was like he's like get a wah-wah pedal and like leave it half open you gotta get down in the mud you gotta get down in the muck with him like you can't he's like and tune to him i was yeah. like oh right so we get there at, in the new york gig i'm like so lauren uh, do you use it what what tuning do you use and he's just like standard I'm like, okay. Um, can you give me an A? And it's like, oh, like it's totally. Not, I mean, it's it's the standard note relationship, but it's just it's he's tuned down. He's uh, tuned down to some other, um, some you know, much lower pitch. Uh, um, so I was like, oh, so I tuned down to him. And then that that show was very satisfying. It was an N- NYC taper recording of it. And then I don't know, six months later, he came down to Philly, and so I'm like thinking to myself, ah, oh, I okay, I figured it out I know it. I play with Lauren so then I sit down with him at the sound check and I'm like hey Lauren can you give me an A and he had like I don't know he had the guitar going through like a backwards delay where it was just the wet signal and nothing else and he's like sure it's <laughs> like mist comes out of his amp and I'm like uh can you can you do that again he's like try! And he wouldn't take the effect off no uh-huh. so i'm like i try to kind of tune to it as best as i could and then i look back over him and he's changing his tuning so i'm like ah I
0: see is that one you. of those like don't follow me kind of things
1: or i mean i think he's kind of a trickster you know yeah like i, mean, I, I don't i don't know what he, i don't know what he was thinking it might have also just been a completely innocent thing i think he's somebody right. who's just like very in the moment and you know every, and he's a he's a pure improviser he doesn't plan anything and um so I don't know, but I mean, you know, he's also a very funny guy and I, right. I can imagine him just being like, oh, I'll fuck you, with you a little bit.
0: Fuck you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how did you meet Derek Bailey? Did you... uh, just through hanging out at Tonic. I mean, you knew who he was. You knew. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he's kind of like. Yeah. He literally wrote the book on improvisation. Yeah, for
1: sure. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I knew I was in, I mean, I was talking to the man, you know, yeah. like, um, yeah. So, uh. But yeah, like I said, he was here for a few years. He was just here all the time. Yeah,
0: that's around the time he would have been making those standards records. Yep.
1: Yep. Yeah, and I saw him with uh, Calvin Weston and Jamal Adin Takuma oh, at my god! Roulette when they made that. I think that's when they recorded. He did a trio record. That
0: record is insane.
1: Yeah, yeah. I love that record. Yeah. Um, I saw him with uh, Cecil Taylor. Um, at Tonic, yeah. Ugh. um saw him with, you know, Susie Ibarra. Uh-huh. A lot of people. Um, did you play with him uh? Never played with him. Did you talk improvisation with him? Oh, I was always trying to like just. I just wanted to hang around with him and soak yeah. up whatever it was that he said. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah.
0: That's but, the best. But, but I,
1: and I like I said, I, I was still very unformed myself at that time. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I didn't feel like I could, uh, in terms of the discourse, like really go there with him. I didn't feel confident enough to like talk to him on that level. Although he was never condescending or patronizing at all he was just like a totally gentleman down-to-earth guy yeah Yeah. for sure i mean like wicked wit and sarcasm but like you know uh, totally down-to-earth guy and so yeah i just tried to spend as much time around him as i could yeah he gave me one of his picks once which of course i lost which i think about all the time but you know what his picks were Uh -uh. they're made out of this um uh i think is it who's the the british um Percussionist who's also a dentist uh, oh uh
0: paul litton yeah paul litton yeah.
1: made um made these picks for him out of like like uh the gum like the fake gums for dentures, what? so it was like these pink kind of i don't know what they're made out of some kind of plastic or something, but they're large and thick like this like huh. like a quarter inch thick or something like that and but the 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 material is fairly soft, so they would wear down and he would just go through them, so he would like when the each of the points, it was like a triangular shaped thing. Like each of the points went down. He would just get rid of them. And he gave me one, but it's like I took it home and I and I played my guitar. And I was like, "Oh, that's like a huge part of the sound. Like this, the the percussive weight right. of that pick on his strings. It was like one of those things. We realized that's the sa- that's
0: that's that sound. that's yeah. a big part of the sound, you know." man it's I, one thing i love about that and and this is when you spend time around the people whose music you know has had an impact on you and you you know it pretty you know you, you've you internalized it and then when you figure out like these little techniques you know are just like oh fuck that's how he does that that's yeah. how he does that you know like like um i was hanging out with mary Halverson one day and like i saw the way she like used the expression pedal to make that like kind of like slurpy backward sound uh-huh. you know and it's like it's her shit like you hear that you know mm-hmm. immediately who it is and it's just like oh yeah like who Who knows how long it took her to go you know to to realize that little that mm-hmm. little you know gesture but it's you know it's so it's so simple it probably took forever to come to and i can't touch it because that's that's hers yeah yeah <laughs> you know sure. what i mean uh-huh um oh, i love that man i love that i love being around people like you know like, like uh, i've gotten to spend some time around evan parker or zorn and kind of check out you know their shit and uh-huh. it's just like it's there's nothing better. No music school can offer that. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So PSI got, that was like your first project that you feel like your musical voice, you know? Yeah. I felt like that was the first, art, you know,
1: mature thing or like, art uh, you know, suc- aesthetically successful thing. Um, you know, and it was really, it was very much these, you know, these three personalities and where I'm still very good friends with all those guys. Um, Fritz lives in Glasgow now. Jamie lives in Chicago. And uh, I see them whenever I'm in those places, but um you know it was also like a lot of those kinds of things it was very fraught and I think a lot of it had to do with each of our psychology at the time and yeah you know we were it was very much like a post nine eleven thing there was a lot of trauma in the music mm-hmm. you know um uh, Iraq and all that stuff was I feel like directly and indirectly expressed in the music um you know uh, so and we were we were you know we we um we toured a pretty good amount, and I mean it's funny. Like nowadays, I sort of I'm sort of interacting with the music business, and yeah. for the first time in my life, and like this was like you know we were, we would find ways to do like three week tours in America, and you know it was all kinds of cra- weird places, and you know some like find a college gig to get a little money to pay for the van or the whatever, and then you know this person's house and that basement and this club and this like you know. Where wherever but we always managed to make it work and um you know move the music along which was the most important thing mm-hmm. and uh we went to europe quite a bit where we had more success so to speak i mean like people you
0: know you came home with a little money
1: yeah well we actually we never lost money somehow we always at least broke even yeah even in the states um uh, and then, yeah, we would make a little more money over there, but also just people people got the music, I feel. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just, there but, was, e- but
0: even at like the underground house shows in Europe, they treat artists better. Yeah. Even yeah. if it's just like a warm, clean bed and, yeah, you know, some cooked to dinner. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: That kind of stuff. So we toured pretty widely in Europe and, um, even the UK. And, um, you know, but then that sort of, uh, you know, sort of started to kind of run its course, uh, you know, Jamie, I think Jamie left New York at first. Uh, and we kept going until, I think the last gig we played was in maybe 2010 uh-huh. in Belgium. Uh, we had this like crazy kind of like fly-in gig over there. Um, and then at that, we actually recorded, we, it was great. We had a week to do, uh, it was like a residency thing that Fritz was doing. In Charleroi, or? No, it was, uh, it was in Antwerp. Okay. And um, although I've played in Charleroi, that's a fucking weird town. I love that place. Um <laughs> This was in Antwerp. And it was this residency, and he he was there for I don't know a number of weeks. But we were able to be there for a week. And we had a rehearsal studio and a four track, and we recorded and we did a concert. Yeah. And um, uh, that's I I I think that's the best document of what we did. The LP sure. that came out of that. So, um, but yeah, you know, we I mean, I still got hundreds and hundreds of PSI CDs in my uh, basement. If anybody <laughs> wants them, I mean, we, we I don't know what we were thinking. You know, we would like make records because you're supposed to make records right Yeah. but we didn't have any kind of means of distributing them other than off the bandstand and we had no savvy about how anything worked and you know uh you know we were kind of rubes about it in a lot of ways but um, everyone was
0: yeah i mean i i don't know like you know and I, i i mean this you know, with as much respect as I can mean anything. Like, I don't know that like music like PSI's, is h- how applicable like conventional means of distribution <laughs> to a huge audience are. Right? Like, it's it's unusual music that you know. Yeah, yeah. People find their way to it. Yeah. I think. I hope. Yeah. Um. But then you began. I mean, I have to say, there was a record. It, it's so. I, I, I'm hearing so much of like my own experience in what you're saying because I feel like I didn't really kind of get a handle. I, I didn't begin to make musical expressions that were aesthetically solid until i was about 27 Mm -hmm. and one of the one of the records that i heard at the time and i kind of heard some of this like uh lowercase stuff and it didn't click with me i didn't get it i felt very dismissive towards it was the duchess of oysterville oh yeah the duo record you made with nate that was honestly that was an important record for me oh cool Um, that's amazing it, it was it was the first record of purely gestural mostly quiet music that clicked with me and I, I felt like upon hearing it, I felt like, oh, you know, just sound is, is enough of a starting point, mm-hmm. And I can really, I don't have to worry about a lot of other aspects. So let me just start with that. Yeah, yeah. And that was a major, like I started making my first um, solo record and it was my first real record very much like starting from what I was listening that to it, and what I was getting from that record. Oh, amazing. That's yeah.
1: great to hear. Um Yeah, I love playing with Nate. I mean, he's unbelievable. Um we've you know, we've I guess we've made a couple of records now. Uh or you know, and we play occasionally, like whatever once a year or maybe not even once every 5 years whatever yeah. but like it always feels like it's just picking up where you left off and but but it's true i mean it's just the sound and that's what i mean about what i when i when i went into sort of whatever i hate to use these kind of terms but like you know improv or experimental music uh-huh. or whatever like um like it was really just a focus on the flow and the sound and that you know the surface of you know uh of of the sonic experience um and i still I mean, I still, st- I think that's important in any kind of music. It's just mm-hmm. that in that music, like, that's really, like, the main focus. So you can, or at least was for me, so you can, like, kind of go there. Um, you know, throughout, I mean, I was, throughout, I was still listening to, you know, you know, television and, like, early Stones records or mm-hmm. whatever. And, like, you know, like, for pleasure and, like, practicing stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah.
0: But, I mean, as an improviser... Uh, I mean, do you how can I say this? Like I feel like one part of me feels like as an improviser I need to be able to play with and adapt to anyone I'm playing with. Uh so if I've never played the Vision Festival, but if I was invited to play the Vision Festival, you know, in a group with like the Vision Festival regulars, I so my first inclination is to sort of like leave certain aspects of my playing off the stage and sort of, you know, improvise in a way that would be more um you know uh, conducive or or welcome in that environment mhm and part of so it's so when I, I that's my initial feeling and then part of me feels like that's good that's honorable you should be able to adapt to who you're playing with you shouldn't be so stuck in one place but then another parts of me part of me feels like oh that's you not know, being true to you know what my musical vision is like do you have you felt like uh you've had to develop different approaches to improvising um well,
1: let's see. I think I think for me, it, a lot of it is just personal. It's like a, who you're with. Like yeah. to me, it's not something. Like I don't know that I could play. You know, I don't know that I, that I like the the, the the relationships that I have with other musicians that are enduring are really these kind of personal connections, and it's not. It's almost not musical. It's more like there's a relationship there and you can and and within that relationship it allows people to do these things and everybody makes accommodations or Mm -hmm. everybody butts that person out or you know like and it's all part of the mix but um uh you know i don't know i mean i don't i don't i still don't consider myself you know somebody who can play with anybody i think it's really like for me music is very emotional and uh you know, and it's very personal and like uh you know, there there's a there, you know, there's like a there's people that you can that you can just vibe with and there's people that you can't. I mean it's like any kind of relationship I mm-hmm. think, you know. I don't I don't know that there's a mastery of improvisation where you can do something with anybody, I mean, that really works. I mean, I don't know, maybe there is. Mm-hmm. I mean Derek was able to do that, but also some a lot of Derek, you know, invited the train wrecks too. And like Yeah. I mean there are and invited the and invited the the tension, you know what I mean, of that right. kind of stuff, and I, I, I don't know, like because what I do, I can because I'm so emotionally attached to what I do, I can't, I can't, I don't like putting myself in those kind of conflict situations as much, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't, I just don't. There's almost so much time on this earth, and I don't want to like, right? Like, like, uh, you know, have this, have like some kind of like a social experiment <laughs> <laughs> on stage. Yeah. Um, I mean within. A group of people or whatever that can play together. I mean, it's all about like trying to, you know, like make some magic happen. But
0: yeah, I mean, how is that? Like, what what led to? All right, no, let me back up. When did you leave New York, and why? Uh, I left in August of two
1: thousand nine. Pretty mundane reasons, like I don't know. I think at the time, I probably would say something really snotty, like. Like um, oh, the sensibility of the city has really changed, and you know? uh-huh. you know, I can't. And then, you know, and I think maybe there was an element of that, but really, like you know, my wife and I were kind of burning out on on it, and um, like she wanted to teach. Uh, she got an MFA and was like adjuncting, and I was working in restaurants, mm-hmm. and it was like you know, we were we had a great apartment in what had become a beautiful neighborhood, even mm-hmm. though it was like a dump when we moved there. And, um, but we, if we were to move, we wanted to have a kid and if we were going to move someplace to have a kid, like we didn't want to move to Sheepshead Bay, you know what I right. mean? To where we could afford a place that like, we didn't have enough room in our other, in our current apartment. So, you know, it was just one of those things where I was like, ah, it's time to move. Like, let's go try something else. Like, sort of like when I moved to New York, it was just like, ah, something's got to change. Like, it's time to go try something else. Mm-hmm. So, um, she ended up getting a teaching job down there and, you know, I was familiar with philly i liked philly had friends there um so it wasn't like you know we were moving to denver or something right but like um uh you know yeah it was just time for a change yeah and psi had dissolved so like that was another thing that was really keeping me here like my relationship with those guys and my relationship with that music was you know a huge gravity for me and it was and again, that was also like that band was a very emotional band. Do you know Clayton Thomas, uh, bass player? He's Australian. Um, I know the name. Uh, he he was in New York in the early two thousands. Uh, he and his then wife Claire Cooper, who plays like Gujang and harp. Okay, um, but he. He uh, moved to Berlin and sort of lived lived the dream. Like he's like went there, you know, started playing gigs with Evan Parker and Schlippenbach right. and like doing all,
0: crossing all kinds Europe. of like
1: he could play he could play jazz, he could play, you know, like improv, you know, right. all kinds of avant garde music. He could do it all. He's a super talented guy, incredible bass player, very smart, but great dude. But I remember having a conversation with him about this kind of lowercase stuff at the time with PSI was kind of wrestling with. And I remember him saying, like, well, the thing is, is it's totally not emotional music. And I was like, what? Uh. I was like, it completely is for me. He's like, no, it's not. It's, it's like completely intellectual. And it's like, it's a strategy. There's nothing, it's not about humanity (laughs) or something like that. I mean, I mean, mean, he said, maybe he didn't say it's not about humanity, but he definitely said it's not emotional music. And I said, man, like, it's all that for me. Like, I I, like, and so I think, was he surprised by your response? Or,
0: um, or, or no. was he just like fuck it? Is that true?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> he, I mean, like uh, I don't remember what his okay. response was. Honestly, but your but,
0: response was
1: no. And 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 actually, it was something in my and I. am sure I said no, but in my mind, I was like, wow. It was actually kind of a uh, an epiphany for me because I was like, wow, these other people that are doing this stuff maybe aren't as like. Uh, attached to this in like a like a personal way or something like it's there's a di- there maybe there's a
0: distance you know I would say there's certainly a general perception of of a lot of that stuff that it's a little cold yeah that right. it's a little um pretentious yeah a lot of it. Yeah. And that's a general perception. For I'm not sure. saying that that's, that's in fact true. But. Well,
1: I lived in Berlin from t- in the winter of 2002 to 2003. How was that? <laughs> uh, I loved it. I love really? Berlin. Love it. I, I can't, man. I uh, love Berlin. And uh, I mean, especially then, this was like still only, what, 10 years after the wall came down, and like, we were, you know, it was, it's not that way, whatever, we don't, we don't need to get into these conversations of how cities have changed, right? but it was a special place at the time, and that music was happening, and there was a venue called The Kula, which I think is still there, where every Monday they had these concerts, and like, um, you know, so I saw some great stuff there, I saw some terrible stuff there, but I mean, my wife and I used to have a joke that we should like, uh, you know, do a concert where somebody like, you know, sat down on a chair in front of everybody and like sort of <laughs> dug in and and picked up their horn and was like like moved it towards it and didn't and then held it and moved it and then and then have somebody in like a football uniform just come running in from the back it of the place and just tackled the guy.
0: <laughs> Man, I would but, pay a
1: hundred dollars to see that coach. <laughs> but uh No, I mean I, I learned a huge amount there and I l and I I mean like again like just the just the thing of people being honest about their opinions about music, yeah. which I found, I still found even in New York, like there was a lot of great set, man.
0: Back, like, I mean, behind people's backs, there's some pretty honest. Well, what I'm, <laughs> yeah, of course,
1: it's always behind people's backs, but yeah. that's what I mean is that people saying like, like, uh, like that didn't seem to work for me, or did you know? And like, and 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 for, and maybe it's because for a lot of it, it wasn't like I was struggling to make it work, and like I think I, you know, like anything, you had good nights and bad nights and stuff, yeah. but, like, um. And I appreciated the, uh, the you know, brutal honesty of it,
0: too. I, yeah, I, I have hard... I mean, I've only... I've lived there, toured around there a bit, mm-hmm. and, like, you get that thing where people are like, you know, that wasn't as good as the last time you played. Or, yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> well, some people... You can tell... Some people are bullshitters, too, and, they're, and they are pretentious, and it's, yeah. a, it's a crutch for that, but I don't know. P- there's people that I truly respect over there, who and, and even, like, actually, somebody like Burkhardt. I don't know if you know him. Uh-uh. He's a phenomenal musician, but he's actually kind of a big softy uh-huh. so like he like i've heard him say like mm, nice set guys to like a band who clearly had a hard Horrible set, set. And i remember saying to him like wow you you were totally you totally lied to them and He was like oh well, it's hard sometimes man you know i don't want him, i don't want him to feel so bad
0: <laughs> and i'm like oh yeah the expression i've heard over there a lot which i i enjoy i can't, I can't use it because if i use it as an american it would sound really pretentious but i'll ask hey man what'd you think about that set uh i am not so convinced (laughs) (laughs) i am not so convinced (laughs) so that's good wait uh fuck you know i I don't know if you ever had this experience i went i recorded um you know i do a lot of engineering shit and i recorded a live set for some friends a few weeks ago uh sort of like a large ensemble improvising group there's seven of them and you know i'm i'm mostly paying attention to like you know things not peaking and you know getting good sound so that's most where my attention is and after the set, I talked to one of my friends who was playing in the group, and he was like, "Man, that was such a pile of dog shit." And I was like, "Oh, I didn't think so." He's like, "You thought that was good?" And I was like, "No, I didn't think that either." I mean, and he left me questioning, like, "Oh, how are you judging? Like, what do you? Like, what criteria are you judging this by?" Because to me, it kind of sounded like
1: it's tough and it's almost impossible to judge your own playing in the moment, to, or, yeah. or even shortly thereafter. I think you know. Yeah. I mean, like, I, like I, I, I mean, I've also come to that. You know, there's the the experience of the player. On stage, there's the experience of the other player next to them, on, or yeah. next to them on stage, and like then there's the experience of the audience, and they're all uh, seemingly sometimes unrelated, you know, <laughs> like yeah, um, isn't that weird? Yeah,
0: isn't that fucking weird?
1: And then you hear a recording, and I'll you know you'll hear a recording. I'll sometimes hear a recording of a set that I, I remember walking off being like man. That was not happening. And then, like, Always, like yeah. oh, that was really good. Or you, or the set where you're like, man, all the intangibles are falling my way. This is really, like, this is really great. And then you're like, ah, it's just, no, we're just kind of rushing through it or whatever. Or, you know, it didn't seem right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Like, it, it's, you know, it's a, like, uh, reality is a fickle thing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely subjective. Yeah. It's definitely not, uh, it's like, I don't know, it's like one of those things where, um, Like, sometimes I'll get a record that I'm really, really fucking into. And I mean, like, a rock record or, like, Mm -hmm. a pop record. And I'm like, oh, I love that record. I don't don't really care about those two songs. Those two songs, they just, I've I've tried. I listened to them, like, ten times. They really Mm -hmm. kind of annoy me. And then I read a review, and they're like, clearly the best song in the record is, like, that song. And I'm like, what are you hearing? It's not. That song sucks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so you started the Solar Motel band when you got back to Philly? Uh, Shortly thereafter.
1: So... Um, had
0: that been something on your it was
1: kind of a brewing thing so like the last couple of years that i was in new york and psi sort of we because we were a band that rehearsed like you know once or twice a week and we spent a lot of yeah. time together and it was like really like like a like a big part of my life and all of our lives when that when, that, when that, that kind of when people moved away first jamie then fritz um uh it kind of slowed down and so i was like well i got time to do other things and so I worked with a choreographer named Miguel Gutierrez, uh, for a bit, who's great. And that was actually, uh, a huge experience in toward, sort of giving me the, um, kind of courage or the belief to, that I could generate music myself without collaborating, without depending on other collaborators, mm, without yes. being like a part of a machine, but being like the driver of the machine. Yeah. And, uh. And, um, and then at the same time I started playing with Peter Curlin who's a bass player in the Solar Motel band. And I met him through the dance world too. PSI was also kind of embedded with like art people and uh, contemporary dance people, Uh like just socially and our partners and, and, um, and, uh, we all did music for choreographers and stuff. So, um, I made way more money at ever doing that than, (laughs) than, than playing gigs with PSI, but, um, Anyway, so then um uh, yeah, so then I started playing solo like and and uh oh, it's and, and playing with Peter. So and we had a we had a trio with Ryan Sawyer. All oh, right. At first, does. yeah. Um and we had a trio with Mike Pride. Another one of my boys. Yeah. And um you know, and th- this was where this was the basically at the point where I was like I want to bring some of this sort of like idiomatic rock stuff more to the fore. Like still have it be loose, still have it be Spontaneous, still have it be something where something is invented on stage, but to have—are you an endless boogie fan? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Still have a still have a frame framework, uh, but but to have a framework and to have it, you know, and also to indulge the, you know, the the timbral stuff that I like about an overdriven guitar through a tube amp, you know, Um, and so we we banged around with that stuff for a couple years, you know, playing at Zebulon or um, this and there and places around Williamsburg and stuff. And then moved down to Philly and I was playing solo. And at this point I was going to Europe at least maybe a couple times a year to tour over there and play solo. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, so that was sort of like, you know, like I stuff with like a looper pedal and I would be playing melodies, but then it would get noisy and chaotic and sort of like, you know, still was not really in like a, the rock world, but it was like, I was starting to bring in, I was finding I could get into the flow of like playing, you know, um, melodically and uh lyrically and um as well as the sort of like uh feedback and sort of you know um more sound based stuff uh and then um i made a record called paranoid cat with mike on drums and um also there's a guy I would be remiss to not mention this guy, Sean Hansen, who also I played with a lot in New York. He uh-huh. lives in Kansas City now. He's a very low-key dude, but he's a brilliant musician, plays tons of instruments, kind of conceptualist, performer. He's he's huge. So he, he also, he and I were playing a lot together. So I put together this band with him and Peter. Earl, yeah, him, Peter, and Mike played on this record, Paranoid Cat, which is the first sort of explicit, like, like, recorded statement of, like, rock music or whatever yeah. in what I was doing. But it's still, like, the first side of it is, like, a three-part suite with these, like, you know, long, like, like blown-out improvs and stuff. Um, Nate played on that, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jamie played on that. Um, and then when I was down in Philly, I was... Uh, the, another huge turning point was, like, really shortly after I got there, a couple years after I got there, I was fortunate enough to... to uh, Get this um, Pew Fellowship in the Arts, which oh, is wow. a you know like a pretty substantial financial uh, you know individual unrestricted grant. Um, really on the back of like the Paranoid Cat record, that was like my work samples and stuff. Huh. And so that's so suddenly I could quit the restaurant or quit bartending, you know, and like just do music. <coughs> Excuse me. The dream. And also they they gave me. They financed a couple of recording sessions where I went out and I, I went out to Seattle and recorded a solo record with this guy Scott Colburn.
0: Oh yeah, who, great.
1: Yeah, who he's like the kind of the fourth Sun City girl. Yeah, he is. And um, you know, and I, you know, I'm a huge Sun City Girls fan, huge Rick Bishop fan and friend. And so I went out to Seattle to record a solo record with him, and then at the same time, I recorded this band, this record, Solar Motel in Philly with Peter and Sean and Mike Pride. Uh-huh. You know, and we recorded. It was a pickup band. It wasn't like we didn't gig or anything. We just you know, recorded it like a jazz band. Like we rehearsed once or twice, or you know, I walked through if if that, and like walked through the tunes, and we recorded it, and um, and then that sat on the. Sh- I kept continued playing solo for a while, and that that Solar Motel record kind of sat on the shelf until it got released in two thousand thirteen. Um, and then for the first time in my life, people started calling me to like, like, well, when is the the sol- gig offer in Chicago for the Solar Motel? thing and i'm like oh well i guess i, got, I guess i gotta to put together a band like i yeah. don't have a band and uh and you know and i was like oh well you know mike and peter are in new york and they're busy and i don't know how am I gonna, how this is gonna happen so I, you know i got a couple of people in um in philly and i called mike and peter and sean and i said hey i'm gonna put together this band to play the record and you know and mike and sean were like sounds great i can't wait to hear it and peter was like fuck no i'm coming down there to play bass you're not going to replace me on the bass like wait, what peter was <laughs> like yeah. I, he's like i i don't want no you can't fire me yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> like i'm that's you know i'm in that like i'm yeah. I, and i was like but i don't know you live in new york and I, I, th- so i didn't i didn't know how to be a band leader right at this, point. this is uh, suddenly i'm thrust into the position of being a band leader and so i'm learning as i go and you know uh Fortunately, he was like, "Let's give it a few months and see how it goes and whatever we're we, you know we're still playing together um and so then that band started touring, and um you know for the first time sort of on some level, I mean starting to just a very little bit engage with like a like a broader public on a very small level, I and mean, whatever yeah, yeah, what we've yeah. done is I'm still on a very modest level, but like not going to play before like chin scratching, you know right um. People like, that look like monster. I am not convinced, <laughs> right? like, no, nobody came up after a solo motel gig and said, I am not, not convinced. convinced. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so then that, you know, and then there's been, you know, I think I went into it like with this kind of myth in my mind. It's like, you know, oh, well, a band is a band and has to be these four people and stuff, and you know, personalities and lives and things like don't work out, and you know, uh, the other guitar player, like bowed out, got a, that's when Nick joined the uh-huh. band, um, which is a real smooth transition.
0: He can play. Yeah,
1: and yeah. then um, uh, then the drummer at the time left, and um, and then an old friend of mine named Ray Kubian came in to play drums, and then it became this thing where basically, like, there was gigs being offered or gigs that had to happen and people couldn't make it so then i was like well who can so ryan jewel do you know him i know the name he's great drummer yeah um and he plays all kinds of music and he he's an old friend of mine he used to live in columbus ohio he lives up in woodstock now but he started playing with us occasionally and then it became this thing of like i got these gigs like who can make them and so then we started operating it sort of I, i realized i had to operate this rock band more like what i imagine like a jazz band was up, you know operated like like here's the gigs like who can make it who's going to be the drummer who's going to be the bass player and and so we almost never rehearse and um (laughs) and uh you know like whatever if we have a little run of dates or something we'll get together once and run through stuff for a couple hours and then and then hit it um but that's, you know, that's kind of what it's evolved into. And then, you know, I downsized it to a trio about a year, year and a half ago. Yeah, a little, a little more than a year ago, mm-hmm. um, which has been cool, much lighter on its feet. Um, so it's you? Me and Peter. Uh-huh. Um, and then, well, right now, Ray's playing drums with us on these current shows we're doing. Uh, Ryan uh, did some shows with us in the spring and also in the um, in, uh, beginning of September, um, Jason Ribeiro, who plays in Sun Watchers, Hello, Peter's Jason. other band, yeah. he, um, he did a UK tour with us in August, and he's going back to Europe with us in February. So it's cool. I'm actually I'm super happy with it, and have like come to embrace it that like you know the different. I mean, I'm fortunate that I've got great people to play with who want to play and can bring their own personality and really like animate the music in mm-hmm. their own way. Um, and so uh it's you know it keeps it fresh for me too like the you know when you're when you're with the same group of people like it's easy for improvisations to take the same arc yeah. or to do the same kind yeah, of thing is. and everybody falls into these roles or and so by keeping it um keeping the the um membership kind of fluid it 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 changes it for them and for me really which is which is just you know as important like I'm you know like I've got very specific ideas about you know some of the compositions and how i want things to be but i also always want something to happen on stage that didn't happen last night
0: yeah (laughs) you know yeah that's really important yeah that's the improviser impulse right i mean i i this is probably a completely asinine question but like when you think about a, a night on stage with that band and you say man that was a good night because x amount of it was completely fresh like is there some part of your mind that thinks that way
1: oh for sure yeah i mean that's kind of what that's that's The criteria. I mean, like, and I think that for people, the sense that I get when people see us play is that they don't see bands like that anymore. So like, and this is, this is gets back to the kind of classic rock thing. I mean, you know, back in, uh, um, and I, and I, I, it's really just a music thing. I mean, you could say this about any kind of music, like the best music is like happening in the present right there. Yep. And it's not a show. It's not a rec- recitation of a recording. It's not a recreation of a recording. I mean, there's, you know, whatever. There's all kinds of ways to make music, but for me, the most exciting thing is when there's people up there and they're slamming it and like they're making something happen and they're finding stuff. Yeah. And um you know, I mean, that's what I think a lot of great, you know, uh uh great bands from like the classic rock days, great bands from like the 80s, like the Meat Puppets and the mm-hmm. Husker Du and stuff like that, or Sonic Youth, and mm-hmm. those bands were like also like on this edge where like you know they're there, you know pushing a, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so uh, you know, I, especially now, I mean, God, there's like you know, I mean, it's almost embarrassing to say you're in a rock band now because it's like there's so to my, in my mind there's so little like good rock music being made. But like yeah. when we do play, I you know, I think that we kind of it's apparent that, that that what we're doing is not what you know. Um, I don't, I won't name names, but sure. we're not doing what you know other people are doing.
0: Yeah, I went to go see Swans a couple weeks ago for their final run as uh-huh. this band, and um, I've seen that band you know four or five times in the last uh, several years as you know the current incarnate or now most recent incarnation. Uh-huh. And like, there's clearly an element of improvisation, despite the fact that they do pretty much the same set every night, uh-huh. but there's something so specific about the way the band uses the sound of the room, and they compress the room and they pulsate, and mm-hmm. it's like they they take their time to build these crescendos, and sure. it's all based around the vibration of the room. And it's like, to me, it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah, and to me, it's like I, I clearly hear that like that they've figured out the formula to have that um, level of unpredictability, despite the fact they know they all know the roadmap. Right, they're doing the same. Well, they're behind.
1: they're they're beyond <laughs> idiom. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's the thing that uh, to me that like I. I like this. Uh, I like this framework, you know, of like, like the riffs and whatever, and like we like to keep that like tight, you know. Mm-hmm. And but then it's the tension between like the tight and the like the elastic, and yeah, you know, and like that, and like hopefully, you know, the tunes set up these like places where then then it can just go, right? You know, and you know, Peter is a phenomenal bass player. Like I don't know another bass player who like playing electric bass and like rock bands that can do what he does he's like another guitar player and he's like he really leads the ear and he he's a he's not a guy playing uh he's not a guitar player playing bass he's a bassist yeah and um that record he made is
0: pretty great oh totally septet. i think
1: yeah 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 and the sun watcher stuff is great i like that a lot too
0: are you (laughs) are you a grateful dead fan yes can you explain the grateful dead to me no (laughs) I,
1: <laughs> if you have to ask that question you don't it, like it's it, impossible I, I don't
0: think it, it, it's gonna happen
1: for me i mean i could i could say some things to you but i don't yeah. think i can convince you
0: i'm not i mean I, i'm willing to be convinced is the thing and it's like as a kid my dad listened to it and i hated it yeah and then i started seeing the people like in high school who listened to it and i was like oh this is just dumb jocks pretending to like music sure, and i hate totally. it and then i met real hippies and I hated it even more mm-hmm. and then and then you met some investment bankers and hated it even more but then I was sitting no but the thing was and so like I, I, I still don't really like I was sitting in um, in a restaurant and the song came on and I was like what, what is this it sounds like some fucking shitty bar band and someone was like dude this is the Grateful <laughs> But like the thing is I want to like the Grateful Dead, man. Well, I-
1: I'll I'll give you my I'll give you my like my way in because I can relate to that. And the Grateful Dead is a hugely problematic uh situation. I didn't like them when they existed. I did, I didn't I actively disliked them. Yeah. This goes back to what I was saying about like remember when I said I went to that Nirvana show and there's metalheads there? Right, right. Like there were lines, man. Yeah, and you're not allowed
0: in here. Yeah, right. And
1: like and like uh you know, if you were into the punk stuff, you were n- you, the Grateful Dead was the opposite of that. It was also the peak of their popularity in the late 80s. Like, yeah. and yeah, the football team all went to the shows yeah. in my high school and, you know, came back with drugs from Giant Stadium or whatever. And I was like, ah, fuck that, you know. Um, I was very dismissive and I never gave the music a chance, really. Um, uh, around the time that I was doing, you know, spending a lot of time at Tonic and stuff and doing this like free improv getting into the flow, like I was saying, I started to, they started putting out these Dick's Picks yeah. records. These are all the, the live, bootlegs. well, they're right. official live recordings, but they are, they're soundboard tapes. Right. Um, the kind of stuff that used to be bootlegs or used to be the cassettes that people would pass around. And, um, I started to hear some of those. And I was like, I, I was like, this is weird because I'm, I'm like, it's been built into my bones that I should not like this band. Um, but then I was like, "This kind of sounds like their their jams. Kind of sound like some of the stuff that I hear at Tonic, like uh-huh. except with like country songs in between, right. and like, <laughs> like um, you know." And so then I then I then I went into it, and um, you know, I mean, I'm a Jerry guy. Like I, yeah. I like the I, I actually probably spend more time listening to the Garcia band than the Grateful Dead. Sure. Um, Jerry could play. Oh yeah, and yeah. and he was a you know I think he he. he you know, the, he synthesized his influences in a way that, I mean, I think that's what great, especially great idiomatic players do, is that they synthesize their influences in a way that you can hear what they all are, but they don't sound like, you know, they sound like them. And uh, so, you know, like, like the, all the, the bluegrass and Ornette Coleman and, you know, blues and, you know, rock and roll and all this stuff that he kind of like folds in is, I mean, it's, it's one of a kind kind of situation, I think. I mean, on the other hand, are you a, are you a baseball fan?
0: Um, I used to be at the start of this last season. I looked at the fucking Yankees roster. and I didn't recognize a single name.
1: Okay, well, if by that answer you, you'll probably get what I'm what I'm about to say. What I say about the Grateful Dead is that they're the Nolan Ryan of rock and roll. Okay, they um <laughs> when they were on, they were unhittable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Most the most no hitters ever. Right, you know, most strikeouts ever. Record that will never be broken. Right. Um, but you know. But they were wild and they, they hit a lot of guys. They walked a lot of guys. <laughs> right. They had as many, like as many, like, you know, 24 and eight seasons that they had, they had a lot of like 13 and 16 <laughs> right. seasons, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. They had, yeah,
0: they had yeah, yeah,
1: and so they've got like a huge number of wins and a huge number of losses. Right.
0: But they also played 280 and, nights a year. Right. And they, and they
1: did it forever. Yeah. Um, probably longer than they should have or something, you know, but, uh, so, you know, whatever. But yeah, it's like uh, the best answer is like if you, like you I don't know. I feel like it's one of those things where you just have to kind of get it and it's it's uh it's uh, you just have to have a, an experience with it. But it's yeah, I mean there's a lot of the culture about around it is still like, you know, like very oppressive and and you know, you know the kind of libertarian capitalists like, yeah. you know, and Coulter's a big deadhead and there's definitely Are you serious? Oh yeah. There's I mean there's a huge wing of that that culture that she is. likes
0: them philosophically
1: or she used to go see them all the time because she enjoyed the music
0: yeah that's yeah. why she's such a fucking piece of shit she probably just got so turned off by hippies that she's like fuck it all liberals should die
1: no well, but i mean it's it's like the libertarian thing you know like like they're they're it's like freedom man like i just i'm an individual un you know
0: untethered by untethered, any, anyone yeah. else's sense of what's right and
1: wrong exactly and there's you know there's a current of that that runs through it and you know, I mean, the, you know the reason that they're so popular and so wor- worthy of interest for people is that they are this kind of like quintessentially American thing that like affected a gazillion types of people, and it's very complicated. Yeah, you know, I always. And they're also musically. They're also like ten different bands, depending on when you listen, when you check in with them. You know? Right.
0: If I were to like give it one more earnest effort, like, and <laughs> let's say I pick up three Grateful Dead albums.
1: Well, I don't listen to any of their albums. You I only listen, listen to, to the, the live Papers. stuff.
0: What era? Should um, I, if I'm going to like really give it one more shot? Well, I don't know, like,
1: um, you know, uh, I mean, I'm partial, I'm partial, pers- like, I, I listen to a lot of like the late 70s stuff, which is when they were sort of at their kind of crystalline kind of coked out peak where they were, st- yeah. the songs were super tight, but then the things would get really fluid, but like in the early 70s, like 70, 70, like... Seventy two, seventy three, seventy four is like the most out stuff. Like it's way out. Like yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. it's like some of it's like electric miles, except without the that much technique. I mean, they're they're all sloppy players. You right? Know what I mean, but they're like definitely going there. So, all right. You know, but you know, d- don't do it for me, man. No, I don't, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't,
0: I, I feel like like I, I I can't. My attitude towards them remains so dismissive and i don't feel right being that dismissive towards something that was like a 50 year process of music making yeah. like and you know as i sit in this stupid little apartment you know what i'm saying like i need to come to terms with it i mean garcia is a phenomenal
1: songwriter too i think he's yeah. like the like his. and to me the best stuff is always jerry centered and he's like like the, he uh um you know the ballads like um You know, he just he wrote some just phenomenal songs with, you know, again that sort of like take these like, like you know, um, other kinds of forms and like he filters it into something else, you know, entirely, entirely his own. Um, And there's a lot of darkness in there. I mean, he's a dark, dark, dark dude. Does that to you? So does cocaine, heroin, man. That's the thing. Like, I mean, he's a dark, dark figure. Yeah, and like his songs are. Oh, like have a lot are are dark omens, you know. A lot of it is warnings and like darkness about the human condition, and it's not like you know, ha- hey man, ha- happy happy, right. happy happy joy joy stuff. I mean, that's what Bob Weir was for to like you know put you know yeah, wear, Mickey Hart, yeah, yeah, wear his shorts and like get people going. And, you know, Jerry could like rip some rock and roll, but like, um, you know, at the core, like his stuff is like there's a darkness
0: there that I think is you know. I think LSD. The LSD culture around that band has led to—I mean, LSD. Like you, I don't know about you, man. I it, it changed me forever, it, not in a good way. No, oh, it changed me forever in a good way. Yeah, yeah. I took acid one night. um I I only took acid a handful of times. So the second time I ever took it was the the night after the first time I took it. Oh. I was fourteen, and I oh, took yeah. three and a half hits of oh, acid. I'm sorry. And I've been a different person ever since. Yeah. Much more like tight chested, guarded, nervous, unsure of myself, and <clears throat> but I've been around people who've done a lot of acid, and like there's a common like grindiness to their to their tone, you know. People yeah. that continue on with it.
1: Yeah, I, don't know. I like I didn't I didn't get into it until I was in my late teens, so maybe that's part of it too. I think a lot of you know, like substances are you know can like you said can really change you, and yeah. there's something to be said for. Letting your brain form a little bit before you start uh, stirring it up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> so, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a psychedelic advocate for sure.
0: I am. Just, I know they don't work so well for me. Yeah.
1: Well, that's important to know too, because yeah. that's definitely part of the deal. It's, you know, set and setting, and you know, your personal chemistry and stuff.
0: Yeah. 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 I, I'm much more comfortable. Fucking getting wasted and (laughs) watching dark movies (laughs) and falling asleep on the couch (laughs) alright man this has been really good thanks Chris yeah my pleasure alright that was Chris Forsyth I hope that you guys enjoyed that Um, I thought that was a particularly good one I really enjoyed hanging out with Chris Uh, I hope to do more of it and um, check out his music it's all really great Check out his work with the Solar Motel Band, but also check out his stuff with PSI, and check out that Nate Woolley record I was talking about, The Duchess of Oysterville. Good shit. Go to the com. go to the 5049 website, and uh, that's it. We'll be back next week. Until then, be excellent to each other. Bye.